The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It does not constitute legal or other professional advice. If you require legal advice, you should consult a lawyer. No one connected with this podcast in any way whatsoever can be responsible for your use of the information discussed. The views and opinions expressed are those of the podcast or do not represent the opinions of any other person, entity, agency, organization, employer, or company. These views are always subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Welcome to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing, a podcast blending the demands of the book with the rulings from the bench through the lens of the bag. Police officers with a solid understanding of the law and their legal powers are more confident, competent, and effective. Each and every episode will examine a legal issue in policing by reviewing current Canadian criminal case law from coast to coast to coast. Be prepared to uncover a legal lesson that will improve your decision making. Now let's leap in. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Novakowski, your podcast host, and you are listening to Leap, Legal Issues in Policing. If you are interested in being more confident, competent, and effective in your duties, then Leap is the podcast for you. Have you ever arrested the occupant of a motor vehicle and searched it, only to find a lock safe inside? Now what do you do? Can you search the safe without a warrant? Can you force it open? In this episode, I will be discussing the warrantless common law authority of search incident to arrest. But before we leap into this episode, I just wanted to thank all of you for tuning in. Leap now has listeners in more than 50 Canadian cities from the West Coast in British Columbia to the East Coast in Nova Scotia to the North Coast in Nunavut. So thank you all for tuning in. Many years ago, I recall hearing about a quip made by a member of BC's Court of Appeal. She offered this question. What do you call a drug case without a charter argument? Answer, a guilty plea. Recently, I heard an Ontario criminal defense lawyer say this about drug cases and trying to distill whether there are any charter breaches, and I quote, When someone comes to see me and they have drug charges... The first question I ask is where is the drugs located? Were they in the car? Are they in the trunk? Why were the police in the trunk? Why are the police looking in your pockets? These are questions that automatically come up before I even look at the disclosure, end quote. Of course, a defense lawyer is going to ask where were the drugs found? If they were found in the trunk, why were the police in the trunk? If you are conducting a search, you should be asking yourself the same questions and have good answers. Search and seizure law isn't rocket science after all. So this brings me to the recently released case from the Ontario Court of Appeals cited as R.V. Smith, 2022 ONCA 439. For your convenience, I will put a link to the case in the episode notes. I want to let you know that this decision is short on detail. It is not uncommon for an appeal court to uphold a trial judge's conclusions without a great deal of discussion other than to briefly summarize the facts. When I was a cop, I often wanted to know more about what happened than merely the scant information contained in such reasons for decision. So with a little research, I am able to provide more information about what happened in this case and fill in some of the gaps. So now, let's walk through this case together. The police received information from a reliable, confidential informer. This informer had provided accurate and detailed information on other past investigations that led to seizures. The informer indicated that a woman, who was the roommate of the accused girlfriend, was planning to buy drugs that day. A half ounce of crystal meth from a named drug dealer. I will refer to this woman as the roommate. The informer said that the accused was going to be giving the roommate a ride in his black four-door Honda to pick up the drugs. The police were able to corroborate some of the details provided. The informer also said that Smith was a drug dealer himself who sold crystal meth. However, that information had not been corroborated. The police were aware that the roommate who Smith was driving around was wanted on an outstanding warrant for failing to appear in court on a possession of stolen property charge. The police saw a black four-door Honda in which the roommate was a passenger ran its plate, and learned it was registered to Smith. When Smith's vehicle parked outside the roommate's residential complex, the police saw the roommate get out of the passenger side of the car. She was smoking, carrying a pop can, and was holding a small black metal case in a black cloth bag. 
When the police moved in to arrest the roommate on the warrant for failing to appear, she tried to dispose of the small metal case by throwing it back into the car. But she missed. Upon picking up the metal case from the ground, police opened it and saw makeup, toiletries, and methamphetamine inside. As it turned out, there were 25 grams of methamphetamine and 0.8 grams of heroin in the case. Both the roommate and Smith were arrested for possessing the drugs in the metal case. Smith was searched and $1,705 was found on his person, but no drugs. The police decided to search the vehicle for drugs incident to Smith's and the roommate's arrests, but wanted to do so in a controlled environment at the police station. At the station, the police would have access to proper protective clothing, which was important in handling or being exposed to drugs, such as fentanyl. The vehicle was then towed to the police station where it was searched. The police found a metal case inside the car that was secured by a wire cable with a built-in combination lock. This metal container was described as a safe. The police tried to get the combination for the lock from Smith through his lawyer, but he refused to cooperate. The combination was not provided. So the police decided to open the metal case anyways with a pry bar. Once opened, the police found a large quantity of drugs consisting of 14 grams of heroin and fentanyl mix and 72 grams of methamphetamine inside the metal case. At his trial in the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, Smith's arguments included an attempt to convince the trial judge that the police breached two of his charter rights, Section 8, Search and Seizure, and Section 9, Arbitrary Detention. For example, the defense submitted that Smith's arrest was unlawful. As well, he tried to draw an analogy between opening the locked box and searching a cell phone such that a warrant was required. The trial judge rejected these arguments and found the arrest to be lawful. The searches that followed as an incident to arrest, including conducting the search at the police station and prying open the locked box, were reasonable. A safe is not analogous to a cell phone and no warrant was required to break into it. Smith was convicted of several drug-related offenses and he was sentenced to three years and three months in prison. Of course, this didn't end the matter. Smith appealed to Ontario's top court. He claimed the trial judge made an error in finding no charter breaches. He wanted the drugs found by police excluded or tossed as evidence and therefore he should have been acquitted. A three-member panel of Ontario's highest court rejected Smith's arguments and upheld the trial judge's decision. First, Smith's arrest was lawful. The police had the necessary reasonable grounds to arrest him for possessing the drugs found in the metal case thrown by the roommate. The police had information from a reliable informer that the roommate was planning to buy drugs and Smith was going to give her a ride. Although uncorroborated, the informer said Smith was a drug dealer. Also, when the police arrested the roommate on the unrelated warrant as she got out of the car, a car which had been confirmed as being registered to Smith, she attempted to dispose of a small case by throwing it back into the car. Upon opening this case, the police found drugs. This constellation of facts supported the reasonable subjective belief of the arresting officer that Smith was a party to possessing illicit drugs. As for the search, including prying the locked metal container, which was described as a safe at trial, it was reasonable. And here I quote the Ontario Court of Appeal. The police were entitled to conduct a search of the vehicle incident to the arrest of the appellant, that would be Smith, the accused, and his girlfriend's roommate, who had been his passenger immediately prior to her arrest. It was open to the trial judge to find that prying open the metal container found in the appellant's car did not exceed the bounds of that authority in the circumstances. Although the appellant had asserted a reasonable expectation of privacy in the metal container by refusing to provide the police with the combination to the lock, that did not alter the authority of the police to conduct a search incident to the arrest. 
the police had arrested the appellant and the passenger in his vehicle for possession of drugs. They were entitled to search the vehicle the appellant and the passenger were in immediately prior to their arrests and the compartments and containers within the vehicle for more drugs, end quote. The locked box was a container in the vehicle and could be searched. So what can one take away from this case and others like it? Well, we must first remember that these searches are warrantless and therefore presumptively unreasonable. You, as the police officer, are going to have to rebut this presumption by demonstrating your search complied with the common law and was conducted reasonably. I think we can learn the following legal lessons about searches of vehicles incident to an occupant's arrest. First, the common law power to search as an incident to lawful arrest is an exception to the warrantless search presumption. As has been stated many times by the Supreme Court of Canada, the general or baseline authority to search an arrestee and the surrounding area of the arrest, such as a vehicle, is dependent on, number one, a lawful arrest. Number two, the search must be truly incidental to the arrest in the sense that it is for a valid law enforcement purpose connected to the arrest. Valid law enforcement purposes include searches for safety, the safety of the public, the safety of the police, and the safety of the arrestee themselves. Evidence-based searches prevent the destruction of evidence and allow for the discovery of evidence that may be used at trial. This means that you must be attempting to achieve some valid purpose connected to the arrest. This turns on what you were looking for and why. You must have one of the purposes for a valid search incident to arrest in your mind when you conduct your search, and you must reasonably believe that this purpose may be served by the search. However, you do not need reasonable and probable grounds for the search to meet the standard. Rather, you only require some reasonable basis to do what you did. This is a much lower standard than reasonable and probable grounds. For example, if the purpose of your search is to find evidence, there must be some reasonable prospect of finding evidence of the offense for which an accused was arrested. If you make an arrest for prohibited driving, you will be hard-pressed to justify a search of a trunk for evidence of the prohibited driving. Bottom line, just because you arrest a person in a vehicle or someone who recently emerged from one does not give you the automatic right to search the vehicle. And number three, the search must be conducted in a reasonable manner. This includes the nature and extent of your search. Maybe your search will be limited to an area surrounding the driver, in other cases the entire vehicle, including the trunk. The right to search a vehicle incident to arrest and the scope of that search will depend on a number of factors, including the basis for the arrest, the location of the motor vehicle in relation to the place of the arrest, and other relevant circumstances. Second, where particular privacy interests are elevated, the general or baseline framework for search incident to arrest will require modification to ensure compliance with the Charter. Examples where the power to search incident to arrest has been modified in situations presenting a heightened privacy interest include strip searches, penal swabs, cell phone searches, and searches of the home. Vehicles, however, do not have an elevated expectation of privacy such that the general framework for searches incidental to arrest are modified. As the Supreme Court of Canada said in R.V. Caslake, automobiles are legitimately the objects of search incident to arrest as they attract no heightened expectation of privacy that would justify an exemption from the usual common law principles. Third, although searches incident to arrest will often follow on the heels of an arrest, there is no requirement that such a search be conducted immediately upon arrest. Sometimes the police will delay the search and even move a vehicle to a secure location to complete the search as was done in the Smith case. Delaying a search incidental to arrest does not necessarily take it outside the scope of the common law. In Caslake, 
the Supreme Court was reluctant to set a strict limit on the amount of time that may elapse between the time of search and the time of arrest. The majority said this, and I quote, There is no need to set a firm deadline on the amount of time that may elapse before the search can no longer be said to be incidental to arrest. As a general rule, searches that are truly incidental to arrest will usually occur within a reasonable period of time after the arrest. A substantial delay does not mean that the search is automatically unlawful, but it may cause the court to draw an inference that the search is not sufficiently connected to the arrest. Naturally, the strength of the inference will depend on the length of the delay and can be defeated by a reasonable explanation for the delay." End quote. In R. V. Nolette, another Supreme Court of Canada decision, a semi-tractor and trailer unit was stopped and its occupants were arrested after police found 115 grand bundled in small denominations in the sleeping compartment of the truck's cab. At the roadside, it was determined that the interior length of the trailer was approximately a meter less than the exterior length. This discrepancy suggested there was a false compartment at the front of the trailer. The tractor and trailer were driven to the police detachment and searched over two hours after the arrest. Police discovered 392 pounds of marijuana in a hidden compartment. This search was upheld as an incident to arrest. In RV ASP, the police arrested the accused for simple possession of marijuana, then re-arrested him for possession for the purpose of trafficking. His vehicle was towed to the police detachment and searched without a warrant about two and a half hours after the arrest. 54 Ziploc bags containing marijuana weighing over 13 kilograms were found. The BC Court of Appeal concluded that the period of time elapsing from the time of arrest to the time of search to be prima facie reasonable, and there was no delay that the Crown needed to explain. Thus, the search was lawful as an incident to arrest. Fourth, the basis of a warrantless search as an incident to arrest is not exigent circumstances or urgency, but connection or relatedness to the arrest. This power has been described as extraordinary because it requires neither a warrant nor reasonable and probable grounds. Let's think this through. Search incidental to arrest is by its very nature a warrantless search. As a result, you are not required to establish that obtaining a search warrant was not feasible. Even if you could have obtained a search warrant and had time to do so, there is no requirement that a search warrant be obtained if the search is properly conducted incidental to a lawful arrest. Simply because the police have the ability to obtain a warrant does not mean they need one. Judges have, from time to time, got it wrong by conflating the ability of the police to apply for a warrant with the requirement for a warrant. As the majority of the Supreme Court said in R.V. Fearon, a cell phone search case, the power to search incident to arrest not only permits searches without a warrant, but does so in circumstances in which the grounds to obtain a warrant do not exist. So now I ask, what do you call a drug case with a failed charter argument? Answer, a guilty verdict. In upcoming episodes, I will be discussing the search incident to arrest doctrine in more detail, so tune in for those. I hope this information has been helpful. The mission of this podcast is to inform, influence, and inspire Canada's law enforcement community. We need to spread the message that the law isn't the exclusive domain of lawyers and judges. Police officers must do their part in staying informed about the law. Just this week, I read an article from the Toronto Star where they claimed to have built a database after scouring thousands of court decisions and found 600 serious charter breach cases over the past decade involving Canadian police agencies. Police officers across Canada are violating people's rights with alarming frequency, read the headline. Rights wronged, how police are violating people's charter rights, read another. 
we can and must do better. If you think this podcast would interest others, I would ask that you share this with at least three colleagues. And if you have a topic you would like discussed in a future episode, you can email me at legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. That's legalissuesinpolicing at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And remember, be careful what you practice. You might get good at it. Be smart and stay safe.